Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. Welcome back to Inside the Hive. This is Emily Jane Fox. I am here with my co-host, Joe Hagan. Hey, Joe. Here I am. How are you? I am good. I'm fresh off of a reporting trip. Somewhere sunny, I hope. Somewhere sunny. Somewhere where I slept for one hour because of a grueling flight schedule. So I'm half a human, but we have a full episode filled with two very juicy, fun interviews. I did an interview with Kareem Amer and Fisher Stevens, who have a new five-part documentary coming out about the Lincoln Project this week. It is terrifying. It is ripped from the headlines. It's got it's got a lot in there. The Lincoln Project is very complicated. This docuseries sort of captures it all. And we talked all about the drama that unfolded, the reason why they wanted to embed with the Lincoln Project, and sort of the culture of speaking to people in the the lowest way and uh, what that means for the state of political discourse in this country. And you have our friend Nick Bilton. What did you guys talk about? Well, we talked about uh, the 800-pound gorilla in everybody's room, Elon Musk, uh, who uh, over the transom came the news today that he is back in on the buying of Twitter. So we will see what that means. But we kind of got into a much deeper conversation about narcissistic egomaniacs of the West Coast. This is kind of a full narcissistic egomaniac episode then, right? Yeah. Because you want uh, you want some egos? We got your egos here. We got them. We got them. We got it full of them. Let's let's get to these egos, shall we? Let's dive right into the ego swimming pool. In the 1980s and 90s, New York City needed a tough cop like Detective Louis Scarcella. Putting bad guys away. There's no feeling like it in the world. He was the guy who made sure the worst killers were brought to justice. That's one version. This guy is a piece of shit. Derek Hamilton was put away from murder by Detective Scarcella. In prison, Derek turned himself into the best jailhouse lawyer of his generation. And the law was my girlfriend. This is my only way to freedom. Derek and other convicted murderers started a law firm behind bars. We never knew we had the same cop in the case. Scarcella. We got to show that he's a corrupt cop. They can go f*** themselves. I'm Steve Fishman. And I'm Dax Devlin-Ross. And this is The Burden. Listen to new episodes of The Burden starting March 19th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And to hear episodes one week early and ad-free with exclusive content, subscribe to True Crime Clubhouse on Apple Podcasts. I 
am here with Kareem Amir and Fisher Stevens, directors of the new five-part documentary. It's a Lincoln Project with premieres this week on Showtime. I just watched the first three hours of this documentary and I am riveted. I am stressed. It brings me back to a time that uh, is really giving me, it was making me sweat watching it and giving me a little bit of PTSD. But the way you made this documentary is just absolutely fascinating. And I want to just jump in and ask you, how did this all come to be? What led you guys to be interested in the first place? And then we can sort of go through how this unfolds into the crazy story that it does. Well, Kareem and I uh, have known each other for a while. We we met in Tahrir Square when Kareem was doing the square and I was sort of helping a little bit on that project. And we're both very uh, politically active voluntarily or, you know, try to make films that kind of push pushed freedom, democracy, free speech, and and uh, civil rights. And I think we were both looking to do something during the election. And because COVID was, was happening, we both had a bit of time, but we were both working on a number of projects. Me personally, when Trump's response to COVID was non-existent, basically, I got a bunch of my actor, director, uh, editor friends to try to make an ad about Hey, get your shit together, people, president. Like we need we need help. And then I saw this ad Morning in America by the Lincoln Project and I was like, "Oh my god, that's what we were trying to make and we'll never make it this good." Kareem will tell you his own story, but basically Kareem and I both had an opportunity to meet with them on Zoom because we both wanted to do something. We wanted to have a record of the election. We wanted to be embedded with a group of of people that were not like us but were fighting for the same fight uh, during the election. And we thought, who better than the Lincoln Project? So we basically teamed up because we were busy on a lot of stuff, knew if we had each other, we could make this work, and and asked if we can embed with the, uh, with the Lincoln Project during the 2020 final push because they were coming together for the first time in Park City, Utah, and they gave us access. And we thought we were making a movie and we thought we were just capture, you know, we didn't know where the story was going to go either with the presidential election or with what happened to the Lincoln Project, but that was really what, what brought us together. And Kareem could say what made him, but I needed to do something that I just felt like, Jesus, we're, we're, at, a, we're at a tipping point here. And as opposed to just embedding with liberal people that I always would normally embed with, here was a group of people that I was fighting against for the last four presidential elections, and now we're on the same side. Yeah, no, I, I think Fisher covered so much of it. It's like the, we're filmmakers, but we 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 can't help ourselves uh, when it comes to being involved in political action. Um, you know, I think my, the first film I ever made was The Square. It was it, it was an act of political protest in the making of it. Uh, it's where I met Fisher, and um, you know, it's also a film where we saw social media get used in a political way uh, uh, for the first time in many ways, the kind of the, the opportunity to, to galvanize people with Facebook and Twitter and, and these amazing new tools. Um, and then I, I made a film called The Great Hack, which was, um, you know, looked at the story of Cambridge Analytica and Facebook. And again, a kind of a different weaponization of social media that was taking place this time with Brexit and, and, and the rise of Donald Trump and the way in which you know, social media was weaponized for voter dissent and, 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 you know, violations of the 14th Amendment and things of that nature. And so I was very interested in this idea of like, how, how can you galvanize support or suppress support? How, how this new era 
of, of electioneering that we'd stepped into um, was something that I'm a bit of a kind of just a nerd about. And then obviously when Donald Trump was elected, I mean, the Muslim ban was the first thing he did. And I'm a Muslim American immigrant. You know, so, I mean, it can't get more personal, right? Uh, for, for people like me and, and Fisher, Trump is just an abomination. He, he is the, you know, the absolute destruction of any paradigm of American exceptionalism or American hope or American anything. And, and we say that as people who also have been very critical of America from before the ascent of Trump, right? So this, you know, and, and to, to the idea that he would, you know, come to power again and that we wouldn't course correct. Uh, after four years of, of, of just, you know, absolutely uh, fascist uh, normalization was just something that was too crazy for us. Uh, and of course, we were all home and it was COVID. And, but then these guys were, were, they were able to, I mean, you couldn't stop watching their ads, you know? I mean, you couldn't stop watching yeah. what they were doing. And it was, it was just captivating. And, and, and they were kind of like almost making like, almost like the way music videos in the 90s were just like so appealing. Like they were just things you wanted to kind of, to digest and, and share and, 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 and get, and get you worked up. And then I think for me, uh, and Fisher as well, when we saw the, the clips of them at, um, Cooper union and got a sense of who these guys were and saw also that there was like a couple of people in the founders who were not what you'd expect in the image of a Republican, you know, like someone like Ron Steslow, who's, you know, who's gay and the son of pastors, uh, someone like Mike Madrid, who's Latino. I'd never seen people like this when I thought of Republicans. Uh, that was interesting. And then for me personally, with The Great Hack, our main character was somebody named Brittany Kaiser who had, you know, devoted, who had who had been part of the key uh, Obama team in creating kind of the, the, the way social media was, was, was popularized. And then she had kind of been, you know, helpful in, in, in electing Donald Trump with Cambridge Analytica. So, uh, and then she was, and then she was a whistleblower. So for me, being in a kind of political redemption story was was not unfamiliar territory. And I felt that these guys were kind of in a similar place, but only for them, these guys in many ways had been the architects of the right wing agenda for so many years in America. Uh, not the hard right, but the, the, the mainstream conservative agenda. And and while me and Fisher are both political nerds in a way, it was fascinating to see history through the perspective of the political operative. Like we always look at the candidates, but the operatives, these are the kingmakers. These are the guys with behind the scenes, you know, like the candidates come and go, but these guys, you know, you may not know their names, but they've shaped our lives in ways you may, we don't realize. So it was kind of just fascinating. Once you start getting to talk to them, like you want to know more and more. And, and it was awkward for me and Fisher because we, we would look at each other and be like, they're so different. Like we're so we're so different, you know. But but I but we but we all felt a, a, a real threat to America, and I think we all felt that like yeah. differences aside, like the threat's real. What are we going to do about it? These guys are doing something. So let let's 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 go on the road with them and see what uh, what we can capture. Fisher, I'll ask you. These are the kingmakers. These are the architects, and these are people who typically do remain behind the scenes. I wonder why they agreed to do this and why you think they were interested in doing this and how hard of a sell it was. You know, I liken it to, because uh, I'm an actor first, and I, I started out with a lot of people who, uh, who became very famous. And even me, when I first tasted my success, I became very kind of, oh, sure, put a camera on me, film me, you know? I, it, I would say Steve Schmidt was very well known, but other than Steve Schmidt and maybe George, uh, the rest of these guys... 
you know, this was their moment, right? And they thought they were doing something important, which they were. So they said, okay, let's, let's go. You film us. Let's do it. Let's capture this thing and let's watch it. And we, we watched them. Even when we got there, they just started going up and up. Their, 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 their money raising, their profiles, their articles, the New Yorker, the 60 Minutes. So they were like, hey, yeah, let's, let's have this thing in for posterity. Um, so that's, I think, why they, they let us. I mean, there were times even before sh- shit started hitting the fan where they were like, oh, God, wow. All right, bring the cameras. You know, I mean, all right, let us, why did we do, agree to this? But um, obviously there were times that, that became more and more at certain points. But but they they felt like they were doing something important and they wanted it to capture it. And I think they thought they were building something great and this footage would be useful. Kareem, I have noticed this a lot in my reporting over the last half decade, particularly around people who are close to Donald Trump, that oftentimes people have invited a lot of attention to them when their sides of the street were not clean. And it's always shocking to me when it happens. And so it's surprising to me that these people would allow you guys to follow them knowing that uh, they were going to potentially be found out for some of the things that we have seen bear out in reporting. You guys were there to capture it all. What, if anything, did you guys suspect about some of the things that we now know were going on with their finances and uh, the accusation of untoward behavior in a variety of different ways? Did you know any of that going in? Did you find it out on the fly? And how did that impact how you were making this documentary? Yeah, uh, you know, we we had no idea about anything. I mean, th- this was this was all done. Like you have to remember, we we mobilized a team in the peak of COVID. Uh, we literally had to like uh, some of the tools that we created to how to shoot in COVID were then used by other organizations. I mean, I mean it was like there was no protocols. Mm-hmm. It, it was completely, you know, crazy at at the time um, to kind of to, to 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 set this up. And and what we were shooting was these were these guys started with a with a New York Times op ed that they never thought was going to be, you know, this huge. And then they thought they were going to go around the, the country on tour uh, doing town halls and maybe raise like five million bucks. Mm-hmm. Um, COVID happens, they can't go around the country, but all of a sudden they become a Twitter sensation. So like, I think it's easy always to look in hindsight and connect all these dots, but like th- things were just moving at a speed and at a, and at a strangeness that nobody understood. And I think what the Lincoln Project began became is a group of people who kind of, they, they you know, we talk about the founders a lot, but there's a whole other uh, category of people who are so critical in the success of this organization, especially the younger people, many of them who are Democrats, many of them are independents. So the Lincoln Project became this kind of banner for a lot of people who had nothing in common politically, except for the fact that they knew that for Donald Trump to get reelected was an absolute disaster. And how do we use our political skill sets and and different backgrounds from people like Stuart Stevens to younger people to get him out? And that's all the focus was. You know, like we never saw John Weaver. He was not there. You know, so, again, it's important to remember to the listener, like we focus on them coming together in Utah and Park City where they're for the first time going to be in a physical space and then follow them through the election. Yeah, we we thought we were telling, obviously, the first part of our story, the first few episodes, what we thought, okay, Donald Trump hopefully loses and these guys, you know, go on to do more things. But we, we were obviously surprised 
about that stuff as you were. And, you know, it was very real time in many, in many ways. You know, I, I'm just about halfway through the series is when you really start to feel things turning. And halfway through the second or halfway through the third episode, you're really like, the pressure just keeps building and building and building. And I was feeling it in my chest and I was like, oh God, this is so anxiety producing. I would imagine that you guys being in Salt Lake City, you could sort of feel the, the temperature rising, right? What, what was that like? I, I have heard and read about sort of the culture that pervaded in Salt Lake City. And uh, just curious what your, your gut check was when it was there, when you were there and how that felt as people who were just observing. You know, me and Fisher were taking turns because we both have kids and we were like, uh, and, and it was, uh, so we'd come back and forth. Um, and we had a team there. During COVID, around, on the planes, in, it was nuts. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, they were just growing so fast. The Lincoln Project was becoming this like sensation. Uh, you know, Hollywood was supporting them. Uh, people were calling us and saying like, they need to do this, they need to do that. Can they start the next Republican Party? Like, it was becoming a... You know, we in America, we're, we're so good at, uh, you know, we, 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 we worship success. And when something's successful, we just can just kind of take that, that, that success and put anything onto it. So it became a situation where anything's possible and everything's possible. Um, and yeah, all of a sudden there was like the Lincoln Project is going to become a studio and it's going to be making films and maybe, you know, and it's going to be the biggest entertainment company and it's going to replace Fox News and it's going to, I mean, see, it was like you see the, the internal politics surrounding that where some people knew about that and some people didn't know about that and right, you yeah. really feel like, oh, for the first time, maybe they aren't all on the same team. Maybe they are all, aren't dealing with the same perfect information. And you can really start to see the whole thing unraveling because of ego and money and fame and power. And it's, it's fascinating to watch. It's human. It's human. Yeah. <laughs> millions and millions of dollars raised. You know, well, it's like... The, the thing is, is it's not, it's, it's superhuman because this is something I deal with as a reporter all the time. And now you guys, uh, definitely dealt with this on this. These are master manipulators, right? This is how they became so incredibly successful. And you are trying to get at the truth with people who are very good at manipulating the truth. And so I'm curious to hear from you, how you as filmmakers dealt with the people who are master messengers, but you're trying to sort of get to the truth behind it. <laughs> I mean, they're very smart, right? They're all, I mean, what, mm -hmm. I, I actually, I, I have a rule where I have to kind of really like and be obsessed with my, my characters, right? And, and in a way, Kareem and I, we really did. We really were kind of taken with everybody and, and to a certain extent still are. Like we just let them, tell their story, hopefully. And, and we just try to put the camera on them as much as possible and ask them as many questions as we can or follow them as much as we can. Um, and, and it, you know, I will say all documentaries are difficult, but especially when they, when they take these twists and turns that you had no idea when you were starting, it becomes a whole other ball of wax and all, you know, it's why it's taken us two years to finish as opposed to, we thought January 6th, hopefully, you know, before, okay, Stuart, as, as Schmidt, I think, and Stuart said in, this, in, in November, they were like, January 6th, there's going to be trouble because that's the certification date and these guys are not going to give up easily. 
So we said to them, let's just, this is in, I think, right, Kareem, this is right before, right at election day. We, well, let's film till January 6th. They're like, okay. Mm. And then that's when really stuff, not just January 6th stuff, but that's when things started to change inside of the organization on a big time. The first sense of, of tension we felt was about the Axios and the media stuff. That's really when we... But uh, the other stuff happened after the election. So um, we, we felt like we have to just keep going. And we begged them to keep going. We, the other thing is, we, you know, while there are people who are master political messaging, we didn't make a kind of interview film. Like we followed them day in, day out. And at a certain point, you're as, living as with much them. as we could. Yeah. As much as we could. And so, yeah. you know, at least through the election. And so... You know, you're with them and they see that we're with them and we're not there for while they're yes, they did lots of interviews, but that they we were different than the you know traditional interview that they were doing and they saw that. And also not everybody was media trained. You know, yeah, of course you have people like Steve Schmidt who's a master at speaking to the media and does it every day, but you have a lot of young people in the organization who'd never been interviewed by anything and still haven't, right? And so I think we were able to capture a certain vulnerability. Um, and I think there are a lot of ups and downs. I mean, if you look at the the vibe on election night, you know, it begins in the scene as something that they're just, they're, you know, there's so much, you know, they're very pompous in the beginning. And then as the night starts to show that it's not a blowout, like it really, the mood drops, right? So they let us in on seeing kind of the ups and downs of this uh of this political roller coaster that we that we went on a ride with, in sort of relinquishing that control of allowing you to see the ups and downs, I'm wondering what their reaction has been in seeing this. I did they see the film before it came out? Do they have a chance to comment on any of it or make any sort of changes or or have they seen it? What's the reaction been? You know, they um, we we have some. Um, we generally show certain characters who are primary characters, um, some of their scenes, um, so that they're aware of it, but we don't usually show the whole show to everybody. And we, we usually have a conversation with characters about what's in the show, what's not in the show. And if there's things that are legally complicated, you know, we, we can make arrangements for that. But, you know, Fisher and I, uh, were able to make a film, uh, a series that we feel, uh, independently proud of and, and, and weren't able to, of course, some people are upset with some of the moments in it, but, you know, I, I think it's overall, um, it's an important chapter in their history. And I think that actually we humanize them in a way that many pieces of the media haven't. Um, so I, I think we, for, you know, we, we, we force people to, to be in the political sausage factory, you know, and I think the reality is that most of us don't want to really admit to how the political sausage is made in this country and don't want to really admit to how compromised our political systems have become in allowing it to be the biggest bounty in the world, uh, you know, these, this election system. I mean, this is a multi-billion dollar business, right? You can sit here and blame the Lincoln Project or you can blame Cambridge Analytica, but they're just taking advantage of the American dream, you know? So it's like, don't make the politics of the country for sale and, and then maybe you won't have these situations. But as long as we're fine with that, you know. You can blame Citizens United for a lot of this. I mean, that's when it all changed. That's when the whole story changed. You learn a little bit about that in episodes four and five and the, and the money machine that Kareem is talking about and how it is in a political industrial complex. So 
these guys did not break any rules in terms of that at all. And um, they just were part of the system. Um, and I, I want to, I have to say that at the end of the day, like for Kareem and I, I think I'm speaking for both of us that the fear remains. Fascism in this country is still very close to happening. And the Lincoln Project at the end of the day is still making great ads and is still fighting the fight. And it's a different organization. There's a lot less of them there, but they're still making the ads. And, and uh, we are still on a precipice of, this, of democracy as we know it collapsing. So for Kareem and I, it was important to get this out before uh, the midterms. And hopefully, you know, I think Steve Schmidt's uh, monologue at the end of episode five will hopefully rile people up and Stuart. And at the end of the day, yes, you know, you may not have agreed with these guys and you may not like all that they do, but I think we are all fighting for the same thing. So I'm still fighting for that. And I know Kareem is. So I, I think we all do. And we we can't be complacent in whether you want to support the Lincoln Project or support another organization. We have to stop uh, this country from turning into Brazil. Before I let you go, I want to just ask you one last question, and, and it's about this political sausage machine. I'm curious now, uh, having spent all this time in this world and studying these people and this this way of making ads and this way of talking to the American people, what you think of this era of sort of, if you go low, we'll go lower, and that the way to reach these candidates or, or the American people is by making something that feels... Um, sort of sub sub political ideas. It's just, it's a fascinating time. And uh, it seems like those have been the only things that have broken through. I, I, I hear you. I think it's a, I mean, look, I remember after we made the great hack, people came up to us, were like, we want to make Cambridge Analytica for the Democrats. And I was like, that's the worst thing you could do. Like, that's not okay. Like fight fire with fire. And then there's, we just tear all the fabrics and, and, and ligaments of, and joints that hold the whole system together. Right. But having felt that, I mean, I also never imagined that Donald Trump would, you know, potentially be reelected. I also never imagined that Trumpism would be alive and kicking and be worse. I think we're facing a, a really, really dire situation. And, and, it, it, and unfortunately, you know, not to be alarmist. I mean, I think Pat Fisher and I are being pragmatists, actually. It's like, if we fall into this fascist current, there is no going back. Like, you, you, you break a certain foundation, it's over. You know, I think Americans have a very hard time understanding that the idea of America can collapse. I think we, and I think we have to, I don't know what else has to happen for us to realize that the alarm bells are ringing and we are way past staring at the cliff. We're, we're almost, we're falling, you know? And it's like, so... In that situation, I don't know what the rules of engagement are anymore. I really don't. I wish I could tell you, yes, don't sink below it, don't. But when you've got what I would call a maniacal cult that is trying to take over the country and, and, and put a kind of a far-right fascist enveloping of it that, that, that'll, that'll destroy the whole place, I think you got to do what you got to do, you know? Mm. And, and maybe, maybe I'm an extremist on that, but that's, that's my position. 139 members of the Congress refuse to acknowledge Biden as president right now. 139 members of the United States Congress. It's terrifying. 
Kevin McCarthy is going to first thing when he's majority leader, impeach Joe Biden. I mean, it's we are living in a very scary time right now. You got you got a guy running for Senate of Georgia who can't put a sentence together. It's really, really is scary. So these guys, whatever you want to say, they, they are fighting the good fight. We all are on the same side. And at the end of the day, what Kareem and I hope to accomplish is to to end complacency if you are complacent. And if you're not, you help galvanize more. So I, I think that's really what we want to do. And I know that's, the, at the end of the day, the, at the core of what the Lincoln Project is doing and the people who maybe not no longer part of the Lincoln Project, but they they are still on the same side. So that's that's the goal. That's what we have to keep fighting. And one thing to that point, I think you should look at how we got to this outrage machine, right? It's like, you know, it's like you have to indict the system, you know, look at Fox News, look at that outrage machine and the amount of money that's made on that device. Look at the social media platforms, how much money has, 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 has Facebook made off outrage and divisiveness? How much of this is being right. pushed by, you know, algorithms that continue to push the outrage up and up? So, we are the, there is there are many systemic issues we have to address and looking at to why we have gotten to this place where outrage is what sells and is what gets people's attention in an attention economy like the one we're living in and yes can we can, should we change it absolutely but it's very hard to do that in the midst of a fight for the soul of the nation you have thoroughly made me sick to my stomach i appreciate that it is really sorry um, no, it has reminded me of just how important all this is and why I'm so grateful for you guys coming here and talking about this with me and for the work that you did on this documentary. It premieres on October 7th on Showtime. Thank you so much for your time and for making what you did. Thank you. Thanks, Emily. The 2024 election means this year is going to be chock full of drama and nail-biting suspense. You deserve a politics and news podcast, expert analysis, no spin, no BS, just trusted journalists talking about what you need to know. I'm David Plotz, and each week on Slate's Political Gab Fest, I sit down with The New York Times' Emily Bazelon and CBS News' John Dickerson to do just that. Join us as we unpack the latest in politics, news, and the courts. Listen to The Political Gab Fest every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. Today, we also have, we have the OG, which we refer to him, that's just his nickname here, Nick Bilton. Nick Bilton, special correspondent for Vanity Fair magazine. Welcome, Nick. You know, People just call me the OG in general. I just walk down the street and they're like, yo, it's the OG. Yeah, right. I mean, obviously they would. For no reason whatsoever. Just the way you present, <laughs> you know. Um, do, I, do we get to do – can I ask a question? Do we get to do the breaking news sound for this yeah. for this podcast given that there is a That's little like, breaking news? Whoosh, and now we have breaking <laughs> news. We're right here. <laughs> Special correspondent Nick Bilton, bring us up to date on what is happening right now, Nick. Well, the craziest thing of all time happened this morning in the tech world. Elon Musk, who at one point in time was going to buy Twitter, then not buy Twitter, is now buying Twitter again. And they kind of sent the stock price up so high that the that Wall Street that uh, halted trading, pause trading, and um, it 
got everyone into a, a pretty crazy tizzy as to how this happened. I do have some theories and I have some reporting that I can share. But before we get there, should we just back up a little bit and kind of yeah, start from I the mean, beginning? Well, you want to? Yeah. So what came over the transom here uh, was that he's offering to buy it at a certain price, uh, right? But he's also been in the middle of a lawsuit with Twitter. And consequently, and this is what, you know, we actually were going to do this podcast talk before this news even popped because we were interested in what was coming out of the lawsuit. But now we're onto this new thing. But yeah, okay, so start me at the top. What is what is the top? All right, so the, uh, like if you were to do a two-minute preview version of this, uh, you know, like a trailer on YouTube, it starts with Elon Musk decides that he, he loves Twitter. That's like his his media outlet. It's his Washington Post. It's his New York Times. It's, and so he decides that he is going to join the board. Uh, he buys 9% of the stock. Some months ago, they have no choice but to invite him on the board because he is one of the biggest shareholders, maybe the biggest at that point in time, um, individual shareholder. He is going to join the board. There are text messages that have since come out this week uh, where Parag, who is the current CEO, who uh, became the 97th CEO of Twitter, they were messaging about plans and what they were doing. And Parag was upset that Elon had, had texted something derogatory about Twitter. And Elon seemingly in that moment was just like, you know what? Screw this. Screw you. I'm not joining the board. I'm buying the company. And it literally was a three three lines of text that it was almost like it just seemed like a little kid that was like, I'm not going to play with you. I'm going to buy your house or whatever it is. Like, yes. Um, and that's kind of that's kind of where things ended up. So when I saw this, uh, th- there was a uh, somebody commented on this. A bit, just there were all these texts in which uh, some other tech giants are are talking to him and they all seem to be genuflecting to him and the back channels between these guys reveal them to be these bros who who sort of act out of not strategy as one would think right uh, these brilliant minds of silicon valley but in fact they are just sort of these egotistical frat boys right who- sycophants <laughs> sycophants really i mean it's like yeah <clears throat> yeah what these text messages showed is that you know, Elon says he's going to buy the company. The news breaks pretty quickly. And everyone just is like, how can I be a part of this? How can I get in on this? How can I make some money on this? And it's not like, you know, you. I think you kind of imagine you, you see these billion dollar deals take place and you imagine that, you know, there's going to be lawyers and boardroom meetings and presentations and like, right. you know, EPS state and like all this stuff. And really, it's just literally billionaires being like, Yo, bro, can I get in on your thing? You're the best person I've ever met in my life, and I love you, and I just want to do anything that you do. And and the texts are just kind of mind-boggling. I mean, it's like, you know, Steve Jurvetson, the 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 investor who was canceled, I think, for some sexual harassment stuff. I don't know if he was completely canceled, but he was like kind of close to canceled. He um, you know, he starts texting and asking. You know, who are you hiring? Can you can my son would be great for a role there. He works at Reddit right now. You know, Mark Andreessen is just like, how much do you need? We'd love to throw in. I I oversee this fund, $250 million or whatever. Um, the best is Larry Ellison, who's like, What do you want? Will a billion be okay? Or, or t- you know, and it's like, <laughs> or two, or like, 
who who yeah. among us hasn't texted uh, will a billion or two be okay? Um, but I think the thing that was so shocking is like just how much these people adore and obsess over Elon. And there's no questions. There's no one saying like, hey, you know what? You're trying to get to Mars and you're trying to build these electric cars and and put chips in people's heads and, and you've got 900 children and maybe you should not do this. Uh, everyone is like, how can this benefit me? And how can I kiss the ring and hail to the to Lord Elon? Uh, and it's just kind of amazing to, to, to see that stuff out in the open. Right. Then suddenly the next impulsive thing is he's been embarrassed by the revelations of these texts. And then he goes out and embarrasses himself further by making foreign policy comment about Ukraine and Russia uh, with this ridiculous comment. And I'll just repeat it for edification of the news, but not because it's something smart that he said that, you know, these annexed parts of Ukraine that Russia has declared its own uh, should somehow hold a vote to decide who they want to be a part of, which obviously is ridiculous for all kinds of reasons. But uh, so, you know, there's some question of whether he just jumps in to say that he's going to buy Twitter again in order to kind of halt, A, possibly the litigation that's going on and then kind of like uh, distract people from the idiot thing that he said. And maybe all of this is overthinking it. As uh, Cecilia Kang, the tech reporter at the NYT New York Times said, um, for those debating if this is A, latest twist of many impulsive decisions, or B, part of a grandmaster chess game, in my long experience watching tech, B is extremely rare. <laughs> that is, you know, it's rare for there to be any kind of chess. <laughs> um, you know, so uh, what's your sort of like, uh, you know, as you look into this sort of um, Rorschach test of, a, uh, of an event, what, what's your analysis there, Nick? Well, you said he – you started this by saying that Elon was embarrassed by this Russia thing. I don't think someone like Elon gets embarrassed. I think that there are two kinds of people in the world. There are the people who love attention and the people who don't. Uh, there are a lot of people who think they love attention. It turns out they don't, and they quickly retreat from uh, from that. But there are people that I think like have like some sort of screw loose in some respect that – it doesn't matter what people are saying. They truly are incapable of feeling embarrassed by something they've done. They just love the fact that they are being talked about. And I think, you know, that this Trump and all these CEOs, Zuck, like all these people, I think that, that fall into that category. I think Elon is, is on the same level of Trump when it comes to this. I'm not saying that Elon is Trump or that they're, I think the two very different people, like I think Trump has bullshitted his way through life and, has rarely actually built anything real and honestly. Whereas I do think Elon, there's a big part of him that is a genius. There's no question. He doesn't run these companies on a daily basis. There are lots of people to do for him, but he spearheaded them. He solves problems. You know, there are stories of him on the Tesla Model X line when they were having problems. He literally had his desk moved down to the to the factory floor and he's and he what he inspected every single one that came off the line. Like he's definitely a legitimately intelligent and capable person. But on the same hand, he's also a fucking psychopath and lunatic and like yeah. kind of a little childish. And there's so many stories of, of these things happening. Like, for example, the remember the story of the kids that got caught in the Thai cave um, that we all followed religiously? Sure. Uh, yeah, he built a mini submarine to get them out. 
which of course wouldn't have worked. And they told him when he flew it over there on a stop on his way to China, they said, we don't need this. It's not going to work. We didn't ask you to do this. We need cave divers. Uh, to which he then decided to call one of the cave divers a pedophile and a pedo guy was the word he used. And, you know, attack everyone that wasn't, you know, in his camp. And and I think that the same thing ha- happens with him with lots of things um, where he just gets upset and he just irrationally responds and then has to kind of deal with the consequences afterwards. And I actually think this entire Twitter acquisition is that. He was upset that Parag, the CEO, said, hey, don't tweet the things that you're tweeting because it's, it's making my life difficult. To which Elon was like, you know what? Forget it. I'm buying the company. Don't tell me what to do. And and here we are. And in regards to the Russia stuff, like I thought a lot about this, not specifically the Russia thing, but these people in particular, because I watched it during the pandemic, Elon Musk became the world's greatest expert on vaccines and epidemiology yeah. and all these things. Because he thinks he thinks like, oh, I know everything about electric cars. Therefore, I will know everything about everything. And and I think that the problem is, is that all of these people, all these these men and women who run these companies are surrounded by yes, men and women that never stand up to them, never say, hey, maybe this is a bad idea or maybe you don't actually know what the fuck you're talking about. And the end result is is the situation and the person that we are now discussing. It it just points, it makes glaring the uh, limits of narcissism. You know, we always think that high-functioning narcissists are the big success stories of of our age, right, of our culture. Um, And he's a classic example. But buying Twitter seems like it's like a tar pit for the worst part of his personality, right? Because I think of him as like a guy that was genuinely doing amazing stuff. Why does he need Twitter, right? This freedom of speech thing just seems like it's it's a no-go development in his evolution, right? It's just a sidetrack. It's a distraction. And it's disappointing to think – I mean – I've never really th- – I've never thought of him as a saint, but, you know, if you read just the basic wiki profile of this guy, it's – wow, it's fa- it's really impressive. It's incredibly fascinating. You know, you talked about it, SpaceX, where it's a Tesla and, uh, you know, especially on the heels of Gavin Newsom passing this law and they're going to electrify California. There's real hope here in some of the things he's doing. And then this? Why? Why? What's, it's just – it's pathetic. Well, look, I mean, I think, you know – we we can give credit where credit's due. Like I think, if it wasn't for him, there would be no electric car market. There was no incentivizing right. no exactly uh, aspects of any. There was nothing that incentivized Americans to buy electric cars. There was nothing that incentivized car makers to make electric cars. Uh, and Elon and I think it's the same part. It's this is the the part that I kind of struggle with. Like it's the same part of the same personality. Like I have a little of this. Like I cannot stand being told what to do. Just, I hate it. There's nothing I, like, if when I get pulled over, like, I'm honestly surprised I haven't been hauled off to jail because I'm such a, like, I'm so impatient. I'm like, I wasn't going 45, I was going 43. Like, you know, it's like, and, and, but that works really well for my career as a journalist because I don't like to be told what to do. And that's like, it helps me like find great stories and, and not take no for an answer and so on and so forth. That's like a minuscule level compared to what the the level that these guys are acting at. But on the same, but it's the same kind of principle. Like on the one hand, 
Elon's like, don't tell me what to do personality is like, oh, watch me get rockets to the to Mars and the first humans there. Watch me make an electric car that sells more car electric car company that sells more cars than any other company on the planet. Like, watch me do that. And he does it. And at the same time, that aspect of his personality is also his fatal flaw. And he mm-hmm. he can't stand being told, you know, it happened during the pandemic. Uh, lawmakers in California, there was, you know, lawmakers uh, uh, nationwide, there were rules about opening up workplaces and how many people could go to work and, and so on and so forth. And they essentially shut down the Fremont plant where he makes the Tesla cars. Uh, because of that, he was going to miss his earnings, which of course would have hurt his ego and then the business and so on and so forth. And he just went ballistic and and became like an anti-vaxxer and and he knew more than anyone else. And and then uh, his response was, screw you, I'm moving to Texas where they won't do that. And he moved his headquarters to Texas. Uh, it turns out he, the company, you know, Tesla had done really well here in California, gotten $3.3 billion in subsidies and tax breaks and so on and so forth. Um, but does it benefit him to move to Texas? No, not in any way. I mean, he's not going to get the same tax breaks and subsidies there as he is here it's the dichotomy of these two things of like the don't tell me what to do can be incredible for for new businesses and and these moonshot ideas but it can be incredibly detrimental for his personality and 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 other things and now i think i truly believe from all the research i've done and the reporting and people i've spoken to i truly believe he does not want to own twitter but he does not have a choice uh and that it was just a uh, like dumb decision that was spur of the moment, and uh, now he has to he has to he's sleep. He's got to do it. He's like he got himself in his own little tar pit here. Um, another tweet here from Adam Parkamenko, who's a Democratic uh, sort of very online Democrat. Um, Elon Musk didn't like we were all laughing at him for being a gutless chicken shit, so he's going to buy Twitter and shut us all up, right? So uh, you know, yet yet more analysis of his impulsive character. You know, let me ask you a last question here. I'm going to broaden this out, and we're going to close on a kind of cosmic uh, question um, that I've been thinking about. Oh, I about like cosmic lately. questions. Yeah, because I wrote a biography of a narcissist, and now that narcissist has written a memoir in response to my biography of the said narcissist, whose name will not be mentioned. Um, you know, I've he been asking— shall not be named. Yeah, I've been asking myself, like, well, if high-functioning narcissists are— finding themselves so successful in the culture we're in, whether it's capitalism or our form of capitalism, right? Is that uh, a critique of the system? You know, why are these kinds of guys winning, right? They, they create a big thing and then they drive themselves into the wall and burst into flames. Is that good or is it just they've always been successful no matter what the system was? You know, what is it about the culture we live in that makes it such that Trump uh, rises to power and crashes himself into a wall and may yet do it again, and uh, and then Elon Musk and and uh, you know Peter Thiele or whatever. I mean, these kinds of like, they're a certain personality type. It's an all or nothing narcissists. Uh, it's a great question, and I I actually do believe I have somewhat of an answer to that. I think that that's somewhat been the case for a while when it comes to politics. You know, I think that as a politician or as a president of the United States, for example, you have to make decisions that affect 
sometimes millions, sometimes tens of millions, sometimes hundreds of millions, sometimes billions of people. And you sometimes have to make decisions where you're kind of left in a situation where X number of people may die or not eat tonight or whatever it is uh, when you make Y decision uh, to save X number of people and, and so on. And, and, and as a result, I don't think a lot of normal people ever seek that attention and that pressure and that office and that amount of power and control. I think you have to be completely a little bit sociopathic to want to be any of these things. Uh, you have to have something loose. I truly believe that. And, and maybe it's like some something that uh, evolution has created for leadership roles and so on and so forth. I think where when you bring it to today and the people that we are talking about, I think the thing with technology is that it makes it so easy to reach so many people, an unlimited number of people, uh, and interact with them at a speed that we've never seen before in human history. You know, there has never been a instance that we could communicate with as many people as we can. There's never been a technology or media platform, anything. And they've also happened at a speed that is incomprehensible. Twitter's 15 years old. Yeah. Facebook is close to the same. There are more cell phones than there are people on the planet. There are five plus billion people on the internet. Like it's, it's insane. And this, these things are not, they weren't around when you and I were born. They didn't exist. And they weren't even like in science fiction in a lot of instances. And yeah. so in a matter of time, these things have gone from not existing to existing everywhere all at once with everyone on them. And it just so happened, my true belief is it just so happened that the people who built these things were not geniuses. Uh, like I'm talking about social media and things like that. They were just right, right place, right time nerds who knew how to use a computer. And that's why their personalities are like kind of like Jack Dorsey. They're like weird, like I won't shave my beard and I will drink lemon juice and meditate, you know, and go on 20 day silent retreats and so on. Mark Zuckerberg is like a robot. Elon, who has this like this problem with authority. They're all very different people, but they're all a little weird and messed up. And I think that it's just that they were on the rocket ship when it took off. And we now have to deal with the repercussions of them being the ones in charge. And so I don't put them necessarily in the same camp as like a, as a Trump who concurrently figured out how to use this technology to get attention and to and to benefit themselves. I think that they are just kind of a little bit right place, right time, and we're just stuck with them forever. Yeah. Well, and and I to your point, like this, the the kind of power that comes with this new age, uh, you know, the media age, really. Um, what's if the, it, if what's it, the if, is it the Lincoln quote? The Lincoln quote that uh, I forget exactly, but it's like if you want if you want to see what a, a person is really like, give them power. Uh, and I think yeah. it's like that's what we're seeing. Yeah, yeah. If, if if Nero or Mussolini had had Twitter, we'd be seeing something parallel, right? I mean, it would be it would be what we're saying. They would take it for sure. Nero would want Twitter. There's no doubt about it. He'd be on it all the time. Well, one thousand percent. I mean, look, <laughs> when Hitler took over Germany, the first thing he did was took over the newspapers. He yeah. wanted to control the propaganda and what was said. When Putin took over. In Russia, the first thing he wanted to control was the television stations. Trump was, it was Twitter. That was it. Yeah. It was social media. And so the, the, where, what separates them 
from us plebeian fools is that they get it and they have no qualms doing it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Whereas we'd be like, oh, that doesn't feel very nice. Um, yeah, yeah. And so, Nick, if only you and I were missing our humanity gene, we could just, the places we could go. I know we'd be billionaires with private jets <laughs> and we'd be like owning social media companies and, you know, but sadly, here we are. Yeah, I curse my parents for giving mere, me a conscience. I could have mortals. been rich. Um, yeah, so we'll listen, Nick. <laughs> uh, on that fantastic note, I think we've really uh, we've really nailed it, or you have, and I appreciate your coming on here with your wisdom, your wit, and your OGness to give us it, you know, give it to us uh, solid and straight. All right. Well, thank you for having me, and it'll be interesting. I'll come back on when the Twitter deal finally closes. Who knows? It may get killed again, but. Uh, it'll be interesting to watch over the next few months. And we will. Thanks for coming on. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new uh, translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. Oh. Really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I'm, I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and, and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> <laughs> we hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. <laughs> 